0: And welcome to the EdTech podcast, the show about all perspectives on learning, innovation and technology in and out of the classroom. First up, a big thank you to all of you who sent birthday wishes this week. The existential crisis over getting older is just starting to recede. For many of you, the existential crisis is just beginning as you see history repeating itself in the edtech arena as government and the edtech industry get to grips with tackling some of the issues in the sector which have been pervasive for the past three or more decades. For those who saw my LinkedIn blog post on the UK Government EdTech Challenger Workshop run by the Business and Industrial Strategy Team and the Department for Education, don't forget you can pass on your thoughts for inclusion on the podcast at SpeakPipe. Dot com forward slash the edtech podcast, which is also free and available for anyone wishing to leave a comment or thought on other episodes. What else? Help! As the EdTech podcast grows, I'm approaching various local universities for interns to help with editing, social media, business development and marketing so that I don't become a shell of my former self. If you know young, engaged people who see the value in immersing themselves in the dual worlds of edtech and podcasting in return for responsibility, exposure and good standing in a fast growth sector, please do feel free to connect us both. Events. Following previous live podcasts, the EdTech podcast is launching a live series of podcast recording events looking to tackle some of the issues around funding, accreditation, data and infrastructure, which are currently prohibitive to good innovation. I'm proactively on the hunt for unique venues and complimentary sponsors for the series. For further information, contact the edtechpodcast at gmail.com and more details are available in the show notes. In other news, don't forget if you're attending Digital Transformation, a new higher ed event in the UK, or South by Southwest Edu in the US, there are unique discount codes for both events in the show notes. You can also check out an edtech podcast extra with South by Southwest Edu exec director Ron Reid on the podcast channel about his background in edtech content, publishing and launching the show. And finally, for those listening in London, join us at Edspace on the 2nd of March where we will be looking back over education in Hackney with a live panel featuring the New Way Federation, Hackney Learning Trust, Ministry of Stories, SAM Labs and Rocket Fund. Link again in the show notes. And now this week's episode on higher education, innovation and skills. This week's episode features recordings from the Education Innovation Conference, a one-day event hosted at the University of London during the week of BET and bringing together many mostly higher education professionals and government from the UK and internationally with many attendees present from India and Africa. A big shout out to Pratik Datani and his colleagues at the Economic Consulting Group who organised the event, who you will hear from at the beginning of the recording. In this episode, we hear from various perspectives. How does higher education address the fourth digital revolution? Is it adapting fast enough? How can technology address some of the challenges around teacher-student ratios? And how can we use practical education to reposition different geographies as skills destinations and reverse the dreaded brain drain? We hear from a number of amazing contributors, but I am saddened to admit that a recording fail with Andrea Schleicher, Director for Education and Skills at the OECD, means that his clip is less than a fifth of the original recording. Which is ironic given one of his main messages is that many of the world's young educated people are overqualified for their roles with great degrees but unskilled in the proficiencies they require. I hope very much to catch Andrea on the circuit again to right the wrong, but his other messages were such that, one, the pizza tables are a snapshot only, two, funding is not the biggest influencer after US dollars per student, and three, class sizes and class contact time is not the be-all and end-all, more so the quality of teachers and the time for them to prepare and continually develop breeds the best results. As i just scrape the millennial bracket, I could get all snowflake about this faux pas, but instead I'll embrace my inner grit and put it all down to growth mindset and a reminder to have five backup recordings in the future. That's all for now. Have a great week. If you're in the UK, enjoy the first sights of spring on its way. If you're in Australia, watch out for the crazy hailstorms. And if you're in Lincoln, marvellous work on the win against Burnley. Okay, so we're up uh, bright and breezy and uh, at the Education Innovation Conference at the University of London. And uh, I'm delighted to be here with Pratik Datani, Managing Director of the EPG Economic and Strategy Consulting Group. So good morning Pratik. Good morning. What I was hoping to do this morning is just to get a sense of what the Education Innovation Conference is all about, how long it's been running and what's the aim really. Yeah, so it's, it's
1: the third <coughs> year that we've been running it. It's uh, today at Senate House the University. Uh, of London and the aim is really to look at where education, global education might be headed in the next five to ten years. So as a team we've done quite a lot of education research for UNESCO, for a number of uh, education foundations, some of our work was presented at the World Economic Forum last year um, and at the UN General Assembly uh, in 2016 as well and that was very much looking at where the global education market could develop in a decades time. So this is Tried to address the same issues, but also looking at what the role of technology might be in enabling some of those things to happen.
0: That's very interesting. And so, from some of those meetings, and obviously we had Davos last week. I think um, what what were the main findings, and you know, what do you predict will be discussed here? Um, I know that uh, the Education World Forum as well was, was yesterday and there was a lot of chat about what came out of the OECD reports and that kind of thing. So uh, what do you predict? Well,
1: I think one of the main things is that uh, teaching more teachers just doesn't cut it in, in terms of the, the world stage because a teacher could only teach 50, 100, 200 people. The way of scaling that much more is to use technology. Um, whether it's e-learning, whether it's MOOCs, uh, MOOCs plus something else, blended learning, whatever you want to call it. I think technology plays a key part. And, and today is very much about seeing what some of those, uh, what some of those innovations could look like. Um, and it's really interesting having done this a couple of times before that, that the startups and the tech firms that exhibited and, and spoke at the conference two years ago, some of them have done remarkably well and one of them is, is back here today. Uh, and, and others really haven't. Mm. Um, and I'm minded by something a vice chancellor of a British university said to me a few years ago that, look, we, we may be a little bit more conservative and more risk averse, but we're really a steward for the next 100 years for our organization. And that in education is really important because you're a steward of a young person's mm-hmm. life, life chances effectively. Um, mm-hmm. Ed tech is really exciting, uh, but a lot of ed tech companies burn and crash quite quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. So making sure that uh, yeah, there's continuity and it's not just a flash in the pan and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and highlighting who those winners are and where in the world their products might work best. So for example, in the UK, the volume that you might get in terms of customers will be much lower, but the price point you'll be able to charge is much higher. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Africa and places like India, you're very much looking at bottom of the pyramid schemes where you're dealing with volume and a mm-hmm. low, low price point.
0: And so I know you have a lot of delegates here today from uh, across India and Africa. So um, from previous events that you've run, I mean, what do you think are some of the, the trends that are happening in those different regions as well
1: so India has a million students graduating every year, wow. so in higher education there are about twenty five million students. Um, literacy rates are triple today in India as to what they were just thirty five years ago. Uh, with that context, it means that the the need and the, the wish for really high quality education, even paying premium prices in some of the metro cities in India, the need for that is just going up um it's very common for parents to pay for tuition after school to make sure that their children get 90% 95% 99% to get into the best colleges and universities so but indian students and parents tend to be very savvy so they're very much looking at what's in it for them at the end so will it be a higher job offer a better job offer the ability to to work or study abroad and the The universities from the UK or the colleges from the UK that have really succeeded in India have been the ones that have adapted the model they've used here Mm. to make it relevant to those very savvy Indian customers.
0: In terms of your own role in education, what was kind of your career path into being here today? Uh, I,
1: I'm a great believer in serendipity and chance. So I'm, I'm here almost entirely by chance <laughs> because I started life off as an investment banker at Goldman, oh, interesting. then moved to Deloitte, then worked in litigation for a number of years, um, generally financial services litigation. And then I... Um, I just started thinking a lot more about education, invested in an edtech company, realized that it was quite interesting, um, learned a lot about what works in the sector, what doesn't work in the sector, and then um, got a really great opportunity to work uh, and lead a global team for a UNESCO project. And once that went live at the World Economic Forum in 2015, we started doing a lot more in in this space.
0: And from your experience in investing in edtech, would you have any advice to others considering the same thing? Are there any particular... Uh, investments that you think are more savvy than others? Um,
1: I think the one big thing I've noticed in London versus emerging markets like India is that in London, founders are very much looking for an exit from the the Mm. first day onwards. Whereas for me, education is something where, like I said earlier, you're a steward for a child's life. So for me, a good investment is one that thinks about 25 years and the owner still being there at that time rather than thinking about a quick exit in three mm-hmm. years. Um, and that's the only way that you can build a sustainable company.
0: We are at the Education Innovation Conference at the University of London and just heard a really interesting panel including Andrea Schleicher from the OECD and also indeed Justin Van Vliet from the International Commission on Financing Global Education Opportunity. And so I'm delighted to be here with um, Andrea Schleicher. Uh, So welcome. I know you've got a very busy um, schedule in London this week. What I uh, wanted to delve into a little bit, I know you're speaking at the Education World Forum, the world's gathering of education ministers, and that was around accelerating um, into this fourth revolution idea. So can you tell us a little bit about what you discussed and indeed sort of some of the top level findings that we went through this morning?
2: One of the hardest challenges
1: for education is to better anticipate the evolution of the demand for skills. We know that the kind of things that are easy to teach, easy to test have also become easy to digitize, automate, outsource. so putting a higher premium on, on creative skills
0: fantastic. So I'm now with um, Justin Van Fleet, who's director of the International Commission on Financing Global Education Opportunity and chief of staff for the Office of the UN Special Envoy for Global Education. And uh, Justin, you just told me you just started podcasting as well.
3: Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. So this is, this is really exciting for me to be on a, on a podcast. I can learn from you. Well, <laughs> I've you only go. done two you've, interviews so far. <laughs> you've,
0: got, you've got my emails. Just to dive in, I know you're also dashing across town. Um, what were you talking about here? And what what, what are kind of the main messages you're connecting with people about this week.
3: Great, you know, This week is really important in London with the with the innovation conference we're at today, the Education World Forum. We're coming off the back of the World Economic Forum last week yes. in Davos. And um, what we're looking at is, is ways that we can spread the message about the most recent report of the International Commission on Financing Global Education Opportunity and, and really make sure that the commissioners who have come together and put forward this new vision for education, the learning generation, are able to turn that report into actual action. And uh, the one headline message that I sort of tell everyone, and I mentioned it today at the conference, is when you look across the world and we look at 2030 as the objective, the the target year to get all young people in school and learning at the various levels from early childhood all the way up through post-secondary education... Um, and we look at where we're headed, and if all of the foundations do everything they're doing, all of the donors do everything that they're doing, all the countries do everything they're currently doing in terms of the reforms and investments they're making, by 2030 there'll be 1.6 billion young people in the world, and over half of those young people, 825 million, will not have the basic skills needed to enter the workforce, 200 million will not be at school, another 400 million won't have basic primary, sec- uh, primary school skills. And then another 200 million won't have basic secondary skills. So we're facing an alarming crisis. And the important piece that we're really trying to put out there from the commission is that there is an alternative pathway. There is this vision of a learning generation. And if all countries look across at what other countries are doing, the top 25 percent of the fastest improvers in their in their income bracket and. In, um, divided up by sectors, early childhood, primary, secondary, we could really make significant progress in, in one generation where low-income countries today could raise to the levels of upper-middle-income countries by 2030 or 2040 at the latest in some cases.
0: And talking about finance, I mean, are there, are there particular recommendations on where or how to spend that money yeah. as well?
3: Yeah, exactly. And, and and the interesting piece is we've looked at how much this will cost. You know, Currently today in, in low-income and middle-income countries, we spend $1.2 trillion in education and we'll need to scale it up to $3 trillion by 2030. The interesting fact is that 97% of the financing can come from countries themselves, from governments themselves. This, this plan can be 97% financed by domestic resources. This is based on increased tax capacity, increased growth rates, um, and investments that uh, countries have made in other sectors. And so we're not asking for anything sort of above the realm of possibility. Yeah. But you still need this, 3 tr- uh, this 3% three from the international community, and this amounts to about $89 billion and I
0: remember in your presentation, so you said you know let's look at the equivalent, such as healthcare, where actually you know th- this is money that could be uh, raised. You know, we're not asking for so much if we look at equivalent mm. sectors or industries. Um, I mean, in terms of where that's spent, is it is it spending on extra teachers? Is it, is it spending on tech? What, 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 how's that split out?
3: And it, it's really across the board. And the commission's calling for reforms in education systems so that we know that money is being used to the best effect mm-hmm. possible to achieve learning outcomes, to achieve um, inclusion of young people. And and to that end, the commission, in, in one of its first recommendations around systems performance, acknowledges there's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not a silver bullet. Every country has their own challenges that they need to overcome, and they also have their own advantages that they can, they can harness and, and take advantage of and when we look at the various types of interventions we've we've looked at which interventions have benefits in learning, which types of interventions have benefits on bringing young people into the classrooms, how much do they cost relative to one another, and and we're recommending that countries really take a look at what works, what evidence we have around what and pick a basket of interventions that can help support and bolster their education systems. Some have um, challenges around infrastructure, others may have challenges around preparing young people to learn, around health, nutrition, and those types of co-investments, whereas others it's around teacher quality and supporting and training teachers and making sure they have the professional development they need Um, so there's a whole host of interventions that can deal with what countries are facing but the 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 inspiring part of this is that it can be done it is being done in other countries and if we can learn from other countries and make those investments we really can achieve the learning generation
0: back at education innovation conference and i'm delighted to be here with professor mammo muchi who's research chair in innovation studies at shishwani university of technology and the best thing is is we're both ex-sussex university peeps
4: yes oh that's me me
0: also yeah that's
4: lovely (laughs) and
0: uh, in fact i bumped into um an ex lecturer of mine here really yes yeah also from uh, he used to be at university of sussex and now is at university of east anglia so uh uh, yeah i i enjoyed my time there did you yeah i did i had a great
4: time yeah and i had the to be honest with you, I had the best supervisor. Okay. Uh, he was a uh, British... Uh, his name was Christopher Freeman. Okay. To be honest with you, he's the best human being I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> That's no, such no, honestly, a nice thing to say. He was say. amazing. He was, he was incredible. He was totally ego-free, very helpful, and like a father to me. I mean, he was wow. caring. Totally. Yeah. You would not believe. I, 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 I'm just amazed that... there are people like that in this world
0: and do you think that's rubbed off on how you interact with your students I
4: try I try I cannot be like him (laughs) (laughs) I I, I try Mm. but to learn from what he did but uh, it's difficult to be like him
0: and do you stay in contact or no no he's he's, uh,
4: passed away now uh, unfortunately Uh, but uh, I keep in touch with his uh, children Uh, his son one of his sons is Alan Freeman yeah he's in Canada now I teach, in, and we're, we're working on, uh, le, you know, putting his legacy, and we have something called uh, GlobalX, the Global Network on Economics of Innovation, mm-hmm. Learning Competence Building, and it's actually uh, his, you know, it's like putting his name. We have also a Freeman Lecture, okay. we even do it in India, everywhere here. Yeah. We do about him. We we keep in touch. Everybody is inspired. Not only me, lots of people across okay. the world. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I need to dig yeah. into that, a bit, that yeah. sounds a bit. So I
4: hope all the British people will be like him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what what level. I need to push a bit harder. No, he's, uh, it
4: was just amazing. It's incredible.
0: So um, if I understand correctly, I think you're launching something exciting here. Mm.
4: We we started something called Pan African Talent Initiative. And our idea was, why is Africa always at a talent drain zone of the world, a talent Sahara of the world? Hmm. It should be a, a Sahara green zone of the world. So we said it should not be a departure point for talent. It should be a destination point for talent. So then we said, how should we rebrand Africa? from its current uh, negative uh, mm. brand to a positive one so we thought of creating this uh, africa talent hub uh, and it's a company we wanted to create which is non-profit uh not profit uh, uh, non-profit it's not charity it's neither charity nor nor profit yeah. commerce but it's something in between uh, it's called a community interest company and we are uh, registering it with barclays bank and we're thinking uh, of attracting a huge amount of resources uh, to try to see if we could actually uh, generate a new type of uh, educated uh, graduates. Um, You remember when graduates, they get certificates, they get degrees, Mm -hmm. and they may not get jobs. Mm. That's what we heard about earlier. Yes. So what we should do is we should create uh, change makers, game changers, uh, job creators, uh, not job seekers. How do we do that and, and how do we then uh, bring in uh, innovation mm-hmm. uh, and entrepreneurship and how do we actually do it? As they graduate, so by the time they finish, mm-hmm. they actually can also have their own startups, their own businesses, their own anything they wanted to do in terms of uh, activity. Mm-hmm. That that uh, it's not just an activity for them, but mm-hmm. at least for a, a few other people too.
0: And so, uh, the idea how would they do
4: that? That's the idea.
0: It's quite entrepreneurial and also uh, sort of developing that ecosystem to make that That's possible. Right. Yeah. And so, who are you looking to partner with to establish this?
4: I mean, in terms of uh, partnership now, we have now a board. Yeah. And in the board, uh, we have, uh, from Britain we have people, uh, from India we have people, from Africa we have people. Uh, from America we are seeking some some people to join us. So, we want to make it global. We don't want to make it uh, like uh, Africans doing it themselves. Yes. But we want it to be a global effort so that everyone is engaged and and they support the project more than anything else. That's what we want to do. So we want everyone to be included. It will be a a human, global, caring, sharing uh, project. And that will be
0: based out of the university as well.
4: The main thing we wanted to do is we want to uh, reach the entire Africa. But we can't do it just like that we have to do it step by step. So we thought the best thing is to do a pilot. Mm-hmm. So in the pilot, the university where I am, uh, it's called Swan University of Technology, uh, and I work with industrial engineers and uh, the engineering uh, groups, and they have been in contact with them in the re- uh, research and innovation group. Uh, they, they are, uh, we're now discussing to see if we could construct uh, a memorandum of understanding between the new talent uh, hub, uh, community interest company and the university to see if we could do a very, uh, really c- clear and practical uh, uh, incubation um, mm-hmm. support, uh, giving awards to those people who actually presented very good practical proposals, students, and mainly rely mainly from the students from that university and see if they could do it. Then we can use this and showcase it And then see, uh, we can uh, then go step by step to different parts of Africa. That's our idea.
0: Interesting. And then with those, that second phase, would those also be out of universities?
4: Initially, we should start with universities. Yeah. And later, uh, as we build up, uh, we monitor and evaluate what we do, and eventually, also we get on if our resource base becomes stronger. We can approach also, we can make it wider to other communities too. We can open it up also to other communities. But that would be step by step. And we shouldn't do it uh, <laughs> at the same yeah,
0: time. one step at a time. And yeah, then one step uh, at a time. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and, then the, and then the first phase, yeah. is that particularly focused on tech. So is it education, solution, prob- problem solving? M-
4: mainly, mainly it is, uh, you could call it edtech, but it's mainly... The students will uh, do engineering, for example, industrial engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and they will set a proposal, an idea they have to solve a problem, for example, in a community. It could be any related to health. It could be service, anything. Then they come with ideas. We then assign mentors, and the mentors look at it. Then it gets evaluated by an independent committee. When that happens, then from the seed money, we give them backing. And also there is this uh, African Entrepreneurship Award, and, uh, and some of them can also join the uh, award. Yes, And from the award, they might even get uh, resources so they can actually s- set it up. Our idea is that if they set it up, it mustn't just be for them, for the past pers- one person. Minimum, at least they should involve a number of people. So it must be a uh, team. Yes. And, uh, and, and also they need to build friendships. It's also changing the whole uh, education. In education, you g- when you graduate, you get a certificate. You get a degree. And that's how it has been like that. Mm-hmm. Now we want to make it no. Actually, it's not good to regurgitate what your teacher told you. It's actually you need to create. You need to invent. Mm-hmm. You need to actually broaden the frontier. And in the real world, it also relate what you know from the academic world to the real world, interact, integrate, and be, make it practical and and productive and useful and helpful to everyone. That's mainly the idea.
0: It's really interesting because I think a number of universities now are starting to yeah. do these kind of initiatives. So yes. I know I remember I interviewed a professor from MIT yes, and I, I can't remember if it's uh, Mobius, their particular initiative there, but you know the idea that by the time you've graduated not only do you have this signaler to the market but that you do already have experience of what's it like trying to broker relationships in a company or develop your skills or solve a problem or get backing and and useful things that yeah actually as soon as you step out the door you could apply them straight away
1: absolutely um
0: and 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 what about technology as a role in this whole project but also obviously that's um you know, in terms of innovation studies and we're talking about technology and learning here, how does that apply within the context of what your project is?
4: Yeah, I think technology is critical, of course. Now we live in the digital age. Mm -hmm. We live in what's called the fourth industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. We have a cyber world now, Uh, exponential technology. We call it exponential technology and so on. So a lot of the young people, of course, are engaged in this. So some of the work they do, uh, will always be uh, digital, of course. I mean that nanotechnology, uh, co- quantum computing, many many of these things, robotics, uh, alternative energy, all these uh, ideas that we have to change the world and manage it better. Also, we don't even know sometimes. I mean, we can't say all technology is good; it can also be negative. So we mm. we need to also know. Uh, how to evaluate and see the consequences, the impact it has now. We have climate change, many mm-hmm. things like that. So we'll definitely, I mean, when, when they do these proposals, when we do the evaluation, when we do the mentoring, we actually see the quality of the tech- technology mm-hmm. and the consequences, the impact. Everything has to be uh, done, evaluated, and then accepted or rejected based on, on uh, also the technical evaluation of the technology they do.
0: And what are That's the big uh, educational problems in South Africa that need solving? So if we think about in contextualizing, I always like to ask people, you know, what educational problems are you solving if I'm talking to edtech startups or blue chips? And it's just quite interesting for people thinking about, you know, if they were going to collaborate on this project, like in a local context, what are the educational issues in South Africa? I mean, there's
4: a serious issue uh, to deal with... Uh uh, a lot of the young people saying that they don 't have enough uh, money mm. to pay for education they want free education remember there 's uh, been protests you've you 've seen about that I think the education system is like in some cases it 's like europe and america there 's the top universities mm-hmm. that were built during the apartheid time and they 're still high quality universities but then the new ones you see uh, the, 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 the emerging and uh, all the the different uh, uh, universities uh, that well that were set up were divided eh? okay. so it 's integrating that university, making it uh, unif- i mean similar is not easy yeah. so and there is still a challenge uh, of the quality of education and so on uh, recently there was a very interesting article in The economist. you should read it. Is that the uh, one
0: about uh, lifelong yeah. learning?
4: That's right. It was that. It l- had the men y- growing, yeah, and yeah, the evolution yeah. of man yeah. on the cover. That's uh, that one. And then there was uh, where Theresa May was in it. I don't know. Okay. And page twenty-seven. To you should read it about the South African education. It's amazing what they wrote. Yeah. It's just a problem, uh, you the, of the young people. Um, and the uh, and, and just getting into education, how difficult it is yeah. for a n- number of people it 's not the quality the overall qualities i mean like i don 't see any difference from the I have taught across the world i mean yeah. in America in uh, Europe. England, uh, everywhere, across the world, I have gone. All, I mean, my one of uh, my one of my previous students is uh, he's from England now. He's yeah. a professor. Yeah, Jonathan Subset. <laughs> we give him a shout out on the. <laughs> yeah, I think you should you should put his name in this podcast. I, I shall, I shall, I shall. <laughs> I ca- I, ca- I ca- I'm bragging. Uh, and <laughs> I'll tra- be like, oh, what did I you say? In Sussex. <laughs> he did his degree in Sussex. I me- I met him and uh, he told me he's a professor, and I said, look. <laughs> and then he 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 just yes he's uh, my mentor he said Ah, (laughs) he did acknowledge he didn't deny me (laughs) how does
0: it make you feel when you find out one of your students is a professor it's it's,
4: it's extremely I would not believe it that's the happiest Ah. you see a lot of people may be happy when they get houses money Mm. I'm more happy when I meet people like you and you are doing wonderful things that <laughs> makes me happy that's, that's in my connections, heart connections yeah no no honestly people are the most important yeah and we shouldn't hurt people we should support them yeah and when they become professors
0: this is why I love what I do because I get to spend all day just chatting <laughs> to really interesting people and yes. yeah it's brilliant yeah. and when I, the yeah. best thing is is yes. at some point I'll be listening back to this and I'll be cutting out all the ums and ahs <laughs> apart from this one because I did it on purpose <laughs> and uh, you know even listening yes. back to it it's yes. like it makes you feel a certain yes. way it's really good
4: but it's nice talking to you. And, yeah. and, and you showed me your lovely child. <laughs>
0: I'm
4: so happy. And I asked that question first. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. So, okay, yes. where did we get to? Um, no, but
4: the, key, the one important point I didn't mention is the key thing about why this, this, this project is important mm. is if you see the education system we have, mm-hmm. education I mean. is not just a preparation for life. Mm-hmm. Education is life. Yeah. Sincerely, I mean, like, like water and food is a human Right education is also right almost all of us need to be educated Mm -hmm. even if the education is bad we should learn it Mm -hmm. i'm telling you and so almost universally this must be something we should all do our problem is even when we learn it we we graduate and you don't get jobs Mm. and even there are other uh, companies and others that seek uh, graduates they don't find them so you have, in, even in South Africa, they have mm. this challenge. I know Thousands that, 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 that are graduates that do not have jobs, yeah. but even companies that want to employ them, they do not find them. So this mismatch, skills mismatch is, should be a real match. And, and we can be a very good, uh, this hub we are creating actually be generating a new approach where the connections can also be made. And well, then, I yeah. remember
0: even it's probably five or six years ago now um, looking at retail in South Africa and you've yeah. got all of these international yeah. uh, brands so retail and banking yeah. that are launching there and yeah. exactly the same thing they're sort of talking about the skills gap yeah. and yeah. how to close that and yeah. trying to employ people locally and so on. Um,
4: right. um, have a problem I mean it's mm. a serious challenge across Africa
0: and so the percentages around pr- private education. So I remember here they they mentioned I think in the UK it's seven percent is uh-huh. private education, and mm. in, in India it's forty percent. Yeah, you know we, we're talking about. Having the difficulty of actually accessing the education in the first place, yeah. I just wondered if it, what's the percentage, roughly speaking, about, around private? Is is that part of the reason because it's you know the the quality education is private or is there quite decent state education or? I
4: think it's mainly the the education when they talk about it in South Africa, they mainly talk about the public education. Yeah. They they, they, they I hardly hear uh, private education being mentioned. Yeah. Literally, except private education is mainly in the. Uh, elementary school okay. and secondary school, uh, kindergarten—all these things. There, they are private things. But when it comes to universities, it's mainly the key universities uh, that we, like we have here, uh, Oxford, uh, Cambridge, and so on. All the the eight major universities, you know, the, on the league. Yeah? Yes, yeah. You, you just have like that. You have the uh, University of Cape Town, Wits, uh, Wits, University, University of Cape uh, Pretoria. Yeah, I mean, the University of uh, Johannesburg. This kind of things. This is the kind of thing you hear more. And the issues is how do you get the students who are not able or who do not have the capability in terms of. Uh,
5: accessing paying, in the
4: paying, first one, yeah time uh, on how do we get them and mm-hmm. that, that's the debate in mm-hmm. South Africa mainly that's the main debate in the media and you see it also everywhere and that's what you see more
0: yeah. and and who else are you here to connect with this week?
4: almost everyone here I mean is they came from everywhere yeah it's so it's very very, very good yeah. now when after I talk I think uh, the, all the Indians I, I could talk to yeah. all the British here I mean and the, my board members are also here there's a uh, uh, Stephen Little from op- is a professor at uh, University of uh, Open University. Okay, they are here. They're yeah. all here. So, so it's a very good opportunity, and I met you. Yeah. So. <laughs> and so if people want good. to
0: connect with you, you're on Twitter at uh, Africa Talent Hub. Yeah, suppose, yeah, yeah, isn't it? We yeah.
4: We have a t- talent hub, and we'll yeah. have our website is be finishing, yeah. and our uh, also bank will be uh, put, and I hope uh, donations also can. I mean, it will be open also to donations. Yeah. Not yeah. just to. uh uh, we'll, we'll reach people it. with donations, we'll do practical things, we'll do examples and we'll showcase them and we'll interact and, uh, and uh, co- collaborate and see if we could build it up as a new way by which education could be, uh, could be seen in a very uh, positive light. Because very it's not be. just uh, educating people and getting degrees, yeah. it's actually making something useful for society for other people. That's the main thing, that's, that's what we fantastic. want
0: to do. Thank you very much, Mai.
4: <laughs> Thank you, too. Nice seeing you.
0: Seeing as this is hosted at the University of London, um, I'm delighted to speak to Michael Carrison, who's Director of Educational Innovation and Development at the University of London. So, welcome, Michael. Thank you. I mean, we heard here earlier on from um, Andrea Schleicher from uh, the OECD, around this idea of perhaps degrees as signalers versus uh, skills. I just wondered what your thoughts were on higher education as a sector innovating to, as chase towards skills, uh, increases in its velocity if we look at it like that. H- how the higher education sector is adapted? you know, will it become more skills-based? Or do you think they would be quite staunch on, you know, mm-hmm. education for education's sake?
5: That's a very uh, interesting and very um, complex question because there's, there's an immense amount that we're still understanding about the modern world in terms of how students learn uh, with the new technologies, with the digital competencies that they've got. You combine that with the world of work, which is changing immensely in terms of um, the number of jobs that we might expect the generation coming through from school now to undertake... Um, the different skill sets that they need in order to adapt and become flexible in the workforce um, and the kind of skills that frankly are are almost extinct in terms of certain elements of manufacturing that have been uh, moved through technical advance uh, into um, areas that that students of our generation would have expected to have as, as significant scale jobs available for them. So we've got a generation in transit who, who are needing to be retrained and reskilled. We've got a digital generation coming through who need to be engaged with through modern media, through modern technologies. Um, and in all of it, that needs to be meaningful learning, both. <laughs> In terms of practical skills, but also, as we'd say here, as a a, a pillar of higher education for 158 years that that needs to have that critical thinking, Mm -hmm. the reflective practice and understanding the world around us um, in a much more conceptual way, but equally something that can be applied. And so if I give you an example of a recent programme that we've launched uh, last year, it's an MSc in professional accountancy and it's the world's first integrated masters with the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants. And we've actually got a significant number of uh, members and affiliates, over 2,000 enrolled on that programme in the last year. And that is working with an integration of a very applied subject of accountancy, that the professional body require technical skills to be acquired, but also blending that with critical thinking in the uh, UCL collaborative partners who we work with in delivering that programme, and we combine that into a strategic project, which is actually um, the first uh, version has just been completed by a 1,000 students who did the project in the last session, and that is about um, running... um, Uh, effectively an airline and running that in a simulated way where you make decisions about the airport itself which airlines are allowed into the airport whether you want to have retail space or whether you want to have extra services whether you have restaurants in the airport what customers that you're bringing together so bringing strategy alongside financial discipline, strategic decision making in a really? an, an artificial intelligence yeah. way so that, that's that been great and fun um, but equally as a way that we can really harness the points that you mentioned which is the skills that are needed which is critical thinking and reflection alongside the very technical needs.
0: And so I noticed in your presentation slides, um, you also were talking about MOOCs and what else did you cover off in your presentation today?
5: Um, Yeah, so MOOCs give us, a, you know, we've been around for 158 years, so what I covered was uh, in that time, the Penny Post was a massive change for us because we had students even in the UK um, who who weren't able to send items of coursework in, so formative assessment was not really possible without uh, an affordable postal service and reliable one. So the Penny Post meant that they could send them in to tutors and tutors send the feedback in. We think that's pretty primitive now, but that was massive. And steam uh, steam engines meant that our exam centres around the world could actually get the exams back to us within a reasonable timescale. We've had a 150th anniversary of our first overseas centre uh, in Mauritius just a few years ago. And... You know, all of that has now shifted dramatically in recent years in, in having to harness new innovations and technologies which have moved and, and obviously made a lot of those technological advances obsolete. So the challenge for the university has been to to harness that, to, to make the changes that are needed, also to bring the academics along mm-hmm. because, as I say, yeah. you know, without the academic capital understanding that world around us and how they can most engage in, in in a in an interactive way with the with the modern student um, none of this would be possible so we've got to bring them on that journey train them up so that they're equipped for it MOOCs has been a great fun we've had over 29 MOOCs 1.2 million uh, enrollments we've learned a lot we've had the the um, the the instructors drawn from 10 different Uh, member institutions of the university, London Business School, um, School of Oriental African Studies and they've really tried things out which has been great because they're free and it enables them to actually do something that they might not want to try in the classroom because they've got structure and, and, and content to complete. So that has actually been a great learning curve over the last few years for some of the instructors and ways in which we can actually bring them on this journey.
0: And is it your role, um, you mentioned bringing the academics on, on the journey, so I, um, I interviewed some guys down at the University of Southampton and I, I was um, talking about their iChamps initiative where they have students that work with the academics to tell them about the new technologies that they could be using. I didn't know if it was part of your role to, to bring those academics on board um, or if you have a team or what the... Yes. Kind of structure is there
5: to help that process oh I very much work with the team on that uh, very much so it's um, it's, it's it is a big job because over 50,000 students over 100 programmes we're talking um, thousands of modules and individual courses of study spanning from divinity through to malicious software at postgraduate level um, so right across the breadth of what we offer here in, in London which is which is fantastic but clearly have different challenges in how the academics can actually utilise um, the digital space so so yes it's very much our team that work with the on-campus academics to try to uh, bring them into this online and, and uh, flexible world and, and try to um, get them to think creatively about their program and of course the benefit for them is having worked with us and our instructional design and learning solutions team here who work within my directorate they can then take that content and use it on campus in the way that they want to so Mm -hmm. so actually it's a real win-win-win when it works well and and they can invest their time they actually get the payoff in their classroom where they can they can work with students virtually alongside the classroom sessions
0: i know you have just around the corner here you've got the co-sector and the bloom uh, side of things is that part of what you do or do you guys work quite separately
5: um we do although we are one university of london so they are part of um our, our central um hub here um and for example the careers group that work in there and 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 do excellent work for for all of the um, the tens of thousands of students who need careers advice here in Bloomsbury and, and within the catchment of our member institutions through London and we got them to do a MOOC and it was actually the seventh largest session based MOOC at the time with over 160,000 students doing it. I mean, it was on um, how to prepare yourself for interview for mm. preparing your CV what kind of skills that you can emphasise in, in, in putting yourself forward for for the world of work, which a lot of students don't always think about, particularly undergraduate.
0: That's really interesting because when I was in the interview with the iChamps, that's exactly what we ended up spending quite mm-hmm. a lot of time talking about is is those programmes of documenting the work that you're doing whilst you're doing your degree and making sure that you know that's, uh, that that paves you well for the world of work afterwards. And,
5: yes. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, what I said earlier on, uh, there, there, are, there are better equipped minds than mine to work out just how many jobs we might expect our graduates mm-hmm. to be doing over their lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes in the region of two to three times what my generation would have been mm-hmm. expecting.
0: I think they said here, didn't they, um, we won't be having five jobs, we'll have five careers.
5: You know we've also found that a lot of the students doing our MOOCs will pay for the certification they put those up on LinkedIn just to emphasize yeah. that they've been either doing professional development or career-based work so you know that is the world that we're in and, and the more that students can can really polish and, and and monitor their development through formal education and otherwise we think we, we've got to support that market
0: and do you have like five top top resources or top tech uh, tools that that you recommend that or
5: Well, that's probably for one of my technical teams. As I said in the session just now, I'm hanging on by my fingernails in terms of all the developments and throat. all the all the tech uh, changes and shifts that are happening I mean, we we also use Moodle which is very clunky as a VLE, but what we've done is to use uh, a range of plugins and and um, areas that we could, we feel are tools that the students can use so if I give you some some tools that that we we think are very powerful and important a single source publishing tool which actually takes all of the content assessments learning outcomes of the the modules and courses that we do and and basically meta tags those which basically means that each of the learning outcomes has a passage of of a chapter or a a journal and that therefore we can dynamically provide feedback to students with distractors in formative assessment that say well actually we know what where you've gone wrong there and we position them with the right area diagrams or text that, that will answer that, that is a very powerful tool as long as you've worked with the instructor to design that in from the start. So that's that's a really important area of our work at the moment with, with a lot of content that we obviously um, nurture and curate uh, across the piece. We also have 97 million artefacts in our online library there are ten floors above us with, mm. with dare I say, dead trees some unkind people will say but some wonderful manuscripts in fact old folios of William Shakespeare That's right,
0: yeah, I know all about
5: them so yeah. um, we, we do have uh, a significant e-resource that we use and we link in with all of the um, the, the development of, of materials online, and and so the other tools that we've we've linked to those uh, elements are um, a self-assessment tool, which basically students can see exactly where they're at at any point in their course against the learning outcomes, because the assessment that they've done, the reflective logs that they do. All feedback in to whether they've achieved learning outcomes so it can actually enable a student to put together their own assessment based on the areas that that they've diagnosed a week so that's a really powerful tool which which leads us into the world of adaptive learning Mm -hmm. when we've refined you know just how students get lost along the way so, so those are important tools for us. Planners, time management is incredibly important for all of us, but for online learners in particular. So we have dynamic online tools where students can, can manage their time and also see exactly where they are. So each topic is 10 hours, and therefore you know, they, they should know whether they're ahead, behind, or, or on target for where they want to be. These are very practical tools, not necessarily cutting edge, but nonetheless... Very uh, scalable and sustainable for our students.
0: And who else did you connect with here today? Did you meet some interesting people? So
5: yes, um, some colleagues from India, and um, and also uh, at the last session, I mean, Donald. I've heard a number of times Donald Clark, and um, he's always a, a very interesting speaker, and has mm-hmm. gone through different iterations in his in his life space of uh, uh, of learning technologies. So so he's always interesting to hear what some of the cutting-edge edtech things are. Um, and Julie from from the University of Derby, who we know about, um, who obviously are in the online space uh, as well and, and have similar challenges to us, so it's always use, useful to have a bit of empathetic support from yes. a fellow academic.
0: It's very convenient here as well. <laughs> yes,
5: yeah. But of course, you will know, I hope, if you've done your background, that this is where the, um, the poster of Keep Calm was originally yeah. invented. Well, I
0: did know that uh, George Orwell once worked here and he In based the the of room, Information. room 101 on... Well, my, my, my husband actually works here. So, uh. Does he
5: really? Well, is it the one? there is some rumour that the 101 was also in the old BBC oh, television. He used to go to committees He's there. He's good at
0: spinning a yarn. And that was the one.
5: So 101 has, has, has got its mythical status. Yeah. But the Keep Calm was invented in 1939 in the Ministry of Information based here, of which Orwell was there. There you go. And yeah. so he, uh, yeah, that was where it all came so, from.
0: Well, you seem very calm, so that's good. It's <laughs> rubbed off.
5: I think it's the only thing we can do with so many things changing around no, us.
0: So I'm here with uh, Jacob uh, or Yaki Dayan, uh, who's founder and CEO of EdTech Israel. So welcome, Yaki.
2: Glad to
5: be here.
0: <laughs> so we were just talking previously about EdTech Israel and what it is exactly that you do.
2: Uh, for the Israeli companies, EdTech Israel is like the prof- professional society of all the EdTech startups and uh, companies that are doing educational technologies stuff in Israel. Uh, internationally, we are trying to represent the Israeli market to create investment opportunities, uh, bridge uh, on business development side and uh, to, I would say, export what we have in Israel to other markets around the world. Uh, We are looking in Israel on a snapshot of what we have today. So it's everything from companies that already exist like 15, 20 years that are doing things that are coming from the old, I would say, e-learning mm-hmm. uh, age and some of them that only started a couple of years ago and tried to do things which are top-notch on uh, technology. So it's a mixed bag. I mean, it's it's different. Uh, it's a lot of diversified solutions coming from electrified Lego bricks on one hand uh, that just raised like two million dollars on Indiegogo and Kickstarter, to uh, companies that are doing uh, online virtual schools, uh, already serving more than fifteen thousand students online and uh, doing. Uh, so many millions of dollars a year
0: yeah quite a breadth of different offerings then in terms of the education landscape in israel how would you describe that is it mostly public private um, the companies that are members of yours are they all looking to export or is there enough business to go around in
2: you know that's interesting because there is no business in israel the local market is 80 percent in Hebrew, and it's dominated by one or two companies and None of these Israeli startups, when they start, they never look on the Israeli market. They always look on international markets, and because the U.S. market is very saturated, many of them are looking for other markets like Brazil, India, uh, Europe, and uh, some other parts of the world. Uh, interestingly, there are many companies that have sometimes almost thirty or thirty-five percent of their uh, customers coming from the Emirates or Saudi Arabia or this kind of uh, uh, Arabic uh, places and it's not necessarily coming from let's say US markets uh, uh, at least not for the Israeli companies.
0: Interesting, Yeah, I'm finding that more and more that um, startups certainly they're sort of looking at the US and they're thinking they're so busy there and so they're exploring other other markets to go into.
2: Well in Israel uh, many startups especially in other sectors Uh, They have like an autopilot. They are programmed to go immediately after Israel, to go after the American market, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe also move their HQ to the States and uh, uh, to the Silicon Valley or whatever. That's not the case in education. In education, um, it's a totally different game. It's not the same level of investments that we can see in other sectors. Mm -hmm. It is not an easy sector to be with uh, and to be in. So uh, it's not the same uh, like IoT or cyber or -hmm. defense or maybe or telecom that all of those are generating lots of attraction. Uh, Education is different. And I think that uh, for these companies, it's almost uh, a fact that they understand that they cannot uh, export content. They cannot export services. So the only thing that they can do is actually to try to focus on good technology.
0: And it's interesting because um, I know that we both came from a telecoms background, so me more in terms of uh, documenting that, so working at Informa. But I suppose what it was that we were talking about is uh, people's recognition or not of edtech as a as a sort of tangible thing, you know, because it depends on uh, on how you value that. So are you looking at it from a social impact point of view? Are you looking at it from a monetary point of view? And if you look at sort of telecoms versus edtech, edtech still a very nascent market and... Uh, you know, so that that's something that people are grappling with, I think.
2: You know, I try to look at it from the very optimistic way. Um, I trying to look at it from the uh, social impact or the global impact opportunity. Uh, if we just look at the, uh, at the simple ROI, I would say that today we have in Israel about 120, 140 Israeli the companies. And... Uh, maybe only 20% of them are actually exporting or making revenues and in total doing no more than 70 to 80 million U.S. dollars. So definitely, if you compare this to other sectors uh, in Israel, it's not doing much in terms of export. However, if you try to look at education in a more uh, broad sense, uh, there are a lot of... Uh, things that are being developed in Israel that can be adopted to the education sector. Uh, not many people know, for example, that the HoloLens were developed in Israel by the Microsoft uh, team in Israel. So there's been a lot of development done in Israel, and I, one of the things that ETHEC Israel is trying to do is to generate awareness to the needs of global education and Mm -hmm. to connect entrepreneurs in Israel not only with the things that we have right now, not only with the snapshot of what we have at the moment, but also to encourage them to deal with the, I would say, more pressing uh, problems of the world of the global education market Mm -hmm. and try to divert uh, innovation and resources uh, from Whatever projects that they are working today into uh, things that can go into the education landscape.
0: You mentioned sort of your role as ambassador for that for that project, if you will. Yeah. Um, so where can people find you? I mean, which events will you be attending this year? And
2: first, uh, Etik Israel started also an international summit in Israel, uh, okay. Etik ethe- Israel ethic Summit. Uh, the first one was in June a uh, few months ago attracted about uh, 600 uh, attendees, uh, 66 speakers from all around the world, and 48 uh, Israeli tech companies presented at the conference what they have to offer. And we were discussing at this summit uh, anything from uh, social investments in education to uh, VC investments to the role or to the future of STEM education and so forth. And this actually is the first platform that we have done to create a, a place for Israeli startups to mm-hmm. communicate and to converse with uh, entrepreneurs and uh, a opinion leaders and with investors from around the world. The second uh, summit is expected to be uh, this June, the 4th and the 5th of June in uh, Tel Aviv. And we are expecting for this summit... To uh, see delegations coming from the UK, Mm -hmm. from India, definitely from China. We had last time a summit, we had like 25 people came all the way from China and we expect about the same amount of people to attend also uh, at this summit. And for us, the summit is an opportunity to bring to the Israel entrepreneurs also uh, people like we've met today, the EAC uh, that voice their opinion about the importance of education and the need for educational technologies in places like India, in Africa, in some other regions. And this conversation, I believe, is the right way to engage more entrepreneurs and more resources into opportunities that can be of help to other places around the globe.
0: What about on Twitter? Can people connect with you there? Are you uh,
2: yes uh, uh, yeah. at the okay, cool. uh, So people can uh, connect to us over there, and definitely, I'm expected to be at the SUGSV mm-hmm. in uh, May, and of course uh, in June uh, the Israeli, second Diesel Summit.
0: There you go. So that's it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And enjoy Bet this week. Thanks a lot. Now I am here with Raman Tawa. From the organization Simulanis and uh, Raman was part of the first cohort for Edgy Guild, yeah. the accelerator incubator. In uh, wh- where is the Edgy Guild based?
6: It's in Pune, uh, okay. Which is near the it's, uh, it's near the financial capital of India, which is Mumbai. Okay, it's just a couple of hours drive from Mumbai. Yeah, it's a beautiful city, much better than Mumbai. I like it better than Mumbai.
0: Okay, why is that? Just a little bit it's, more it's chilled.
6: Just, it's not. It's it's. Uh, it's, it's the roads are better. The crowds not as much. Yeah. The weather is thousand times better. I oh, really. Because <laughs> Mumbai so, is near the coast and it's humid and hot. Pune is exactly the opposite. It's, it's all all the year round. It's good weather. Okay. Yeah. So is
0: it slightly cooler? Slightly is cooler. It, yeah. Is it higher up?
6: No. It's one? yeah. It's higher yeah. up and it's surrounded by hills from four sides. So. Yeah. Kind of, you know, what goes around stays inside there.
0: Okay, so it's yeah. like, it's a bit like Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. Stays Vegas, in Vegas yeah, yeah, very much like that. Um, and so, in terms of similarness, I and mean yeah. actually before we start that, so I, I kind of overheard your conversation before, and I think what you're talking about is disparaging this idea that, you know, if you're developing things in India, that it's yeah. cheap, and yeah. that's, that's a fallacy. So, can it you tell is. us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well?
6: very much. I think, see, it's a global um, mindset um, that whenever things come down to India, then they got to be cheap, low-quality blah 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 xyz yeah. know so many things around it i personally don't believe that um, i think um, india is as much global as any other country now really and the prices the, the the rates the the costs are pretty much you know very much similar as compared to what the global prices are and i think that's down to the fact that the average indian is so globalized now yeah and out of 10 probably people working in a corporate you would have eight of them who would have had global educations who would have had a global experience so when you have when you have had that sort of experience you know there is price value attached to your talent and the same applies to pretty much every, every everything which you end up doing so I think that's pretty much not the case so even if we need to hire good talent mm-hmm. we have to shell out decent amounts of money which is kind of on on the same level as compared to you know some of the countries the more advanced countries and developed countries so and
0: and you also said that you know if you want to look at cost like delhi is so that that is that's kind of one of the most comparable so delhi
6: and mumbai like i'm talking about mumbai real estate prices in mumbai if you want to set up an office somewhere around the areas where it's very expensive of course it's very expensive some of the most uh, pricey real estate you can have there and the same applies to delhi Uh, it's not cheap uh, and it compares and rivals with some of the most pricey uh, locations across the world and some of them are, if you look at the top 10 most priciest real estates available in, uh, in the world, I think Delhi would also have, Delhi and Mumbai would be one of them. Um, in the lists, yeah.
0: and I mean, it's interesting to get your perspective as well. Where, where, whereabouts in India are you from? Delhi, Delhi. Delhi okay, Japanese, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so when I've been interviewing people here, especially from uh, the higher education side of things, and obviously Brexit comes up all the time. Yeah, and obviously people are now looking. If you think about edtech companies thinking about exporting, and you know, suddenly Europe is not, um, you know, the the number one first mind choice, or pe- people are trying to work out where it's going to go next from your conversations in Delhi are people also looking the other way around thinking this could be an opportunity for us or is it not really that relevant a conversation Um,
6: not really as of now I think since things I think things are going to take shape in the next uh, couple of years I would say then we can probably see much more much more of an impact from that side especially with Brexit is concerned but uh,
0: and generally speaking, from your experience with other um, companies that have come out of EduGuild, are they looking to export and w- in which kind of countries are they looking to?
6: See, I've had uh, a connect with the UK. Uh, I've started four years at Manchester, so that's okay. a bit of a connect yeah, I have. Yeah. I've worked here for a couple of years as well. Um, I worked there in Cheshire and Hull uh, with farmer manufacturing companies. But, um, See, city so, of culture. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I think... Um, I, if you talk about my company's vision, I think yes, we certainly want to export to the UK and have bilateral trade ties as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably support, other, support some of the companies here, and then probably help them to get things done faster, cheaper. Um, for me personally as well, I think it's just because of the fact that yes, in some of the some of the areas like pharmaceuticals and life sciences, and uh, the industrial training aspect, which we are also trying to you know kind of have a forte in India, uh, we, we we feel that there's a cutting edge of research which happens here which is, uh, which can't be matched really, let's be honest about in, uh, as compared to what India can do right now. So I certainly feel as a company that UK is important and central to our plans. That's why I think part of the reason why I'm also here is to kind of extend talks and probably set up an office in Manchester and see how we can make that a global office for our business development as well as for R&D and, ex- and, and get all those benefits. And I think for me, this is more of a natural choice. Um, mm. But for other companies, I think... Um, I don't really know, especially with the Brexit, I think which you mentioned, it may be inclined more towards the US. But with the uh, with the things happening in the US yeah. now, I think that's also probably going to change. So we can expect a lot of action happening. Uh, I think, especially companies working in a working in the uh, food food technology domain, like in Indi- you know, the startup scene in India is pretty uh, pretty pretty good now. Mm. Uh, you know, they might want to explore such markets as well, where you know the the access to technology and the cultures are so intermingled together that it becomes an easier market for them to sell their things at. So I think I can see that happening. And f- of course, with us, one of the prime reasons to come over here would be, of course, the leveraging the innovation yes. happening around here.
0: And so tell me about uh, Similaris, isn't yeah, it? Similaris, C- um, yeah. So what what exactly do So doing? we
6: develop virtual reality content for t- industrial training okay. uh, pretty much in uh, different industries. Right now, we're focusing on the pharmaceutical sector, uh, clearly because I've got an experience in that field, and that's why mm. I'm doing that. Um, uh, eventually we want to we plan to go on to other sectors such as oil and gas uh, automotive electronics chemicals any industry which has a very strong uh, focus on health and safety and I think which better country than England or the UK (laughs) for health and safety I think Uh, having studied here I think I pretty much know the emphasis on HSE here so I think that's that's where we want to set ourselves in and eventually we want to also work with universities. We have done that in the past as part of our work earlier in which we are creating virtual reality laboratories um, so, so that students can get a better experience and immersive experience of learning things. Yeah. And the, the USP of all our applications is that A, of course, they are technology agnostic, so if, uh, technology platform agnostic. So you can have them on computers, your mobiles, your VR hardware, internet, off the internet. Uh, you can also, uh, basically there's a very strong scientific uh, algorithm play uh, on the background so it's not just something which looks good it's something which which plays equally well scientifically so there's a lot of uh, you know artificial intelligence also in our platforms which uh, on our products which which actually gives them an edge mm-hmm. over the, the market competition we have right now so and uh, yeah and and one of the other things is of course we do it very fast so uh, we are a VR, vr content development company essentially and ultimately trying to pivot into a direction of being an authoring tool as well and uh, in the future so there's going to be a lot of tech uh, which of course is going to happen in this space and VR the way I know it um, it changes every month so I think uh, to be at the cutting edge of it, you really need to be at the mm. forefront of your development cycles to, to kind of make it work. So that's what we're doing.
0: And so you were part of um, Guild, And as yeah. I understand it, so this evening, you're also presenting as part of the Wira cohort. Yeah, yeah, Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Um, and so what, what experience have you found from both of those programs in terms of either connecting you with investment or government support or uh, that network that might be crucial to Mm -hmm. helping support what you're doing?
6: I think, first of all, uh, EduGuild has been brilliant for us. I think it was one of the best decisions probably I took to give away equity for the stuff we were getting at that stage. Uh, We were very much early stage when we had applied to EduGuild and we were very much ready for an accelerator. I think that's what they're there for. Um, So when we entered, uh, we got a lot of business connects. We ended up getting a lot of business leads. Which is what a startup really needs to start with because it starts getting uh, starts infusing more confidence in the teams as well because they know that at the end of the day they are developing something which somebody needs and there's a price tag attached to it. Um, and then of course investor connect also happened, but I think since we took care of the business, I think investment kind of followed on its own really. so that and of course the media attention just kind of you know being known that you're doing something it always helps with PR and marketing that's I think Edugil has done a fabulous job with that for us. Um, that really helped us to get noticed in some of the other things we also did after EduGuild. So uh, as a result of it, we ended up winning close to about, uh, in the same year, 2016 was great for us from, uh, from the outset. We ended up winning about six awards, uh, being tech business of the year, uh, being listed as one of the top 10 ARVR companies in India, being uh, awarded a government grant fund as well uh, for our work, which we are doing in India. So all these things have only happened as a result, only after when we had graduated from Edugild. And I think um, centerpiece of that was also participating in in another competition along with EduGild I've also uh, taken part in another accelerator uh, which was run by uh, US venture capital company called uh, uh, Village Capital so they were running this program Education India 2016 which got together 200 of the best uh, education focused companies out of India and they selected the 35 out of them then they narrowed them down to top 10 and they put them through a 3 month competition which was a pure ranked competition so I'm a company. You're a company. You rank me. I rank you. So it was a three-month competition. There was a lot of mentorship, a lot of investor connects, and um, it was more like you know the big brother competition, which just runs on the There's shows.
0: Been a lot of uh, networking and making Absolutely friends in the run-up to that. Immense, if you're, pe- if
6: and you're yeah, peer review. yeah, and, uh, we, and we ended up winning that competition as well, and that uh, that allowed us to get invested upon by Village Capital. So we got American investors now, and um, things have changed very much. The landscape of our work has changed. But I would say still you know the the sort of support which you got from Eddoguid that kind of stood strong throughout the program as well, which ended up uh, which helped me to actually win that program with the village capital program as well and so I think yeah, and uh, government support has come as well, like we've got some grant funding from the government of India. It's not always easy to get that knowing our government really, yeah. <laughs> but it's been um, it's been good good as a journey this whole last year.
0: Obviously, I've spoken to a couple of VR companies today. Um, are you sort of revenue generating? Yeah, yeah or you are.
6: Very much. So I think we've been a bootstrap company. I think yeah. we've done significant sales um, throughout our journey. I think, uh, and we still are making money out of our VR work.
0: Translating that into the education sector, yeah. obviously, um, certainly from a, a, a public funding point of view, not always flush with cash, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, so will you be aiming into the private education sector or do you have a particular view on how you'd go
6: with that? I think a bit of both, really. I think I can. Uh, the, the technology we're working with, I think there's a very strong endorsement, let's call it, uh, from the government of India and uh, some of the policies which they are running, uh, like Skill India Mission, in which they want to, they want to, they want to train 400 million youth by 2022. Now that ain't going to happen if you don't have good quality infrastructure. Yeah. And if you have VR as a technology, why would you spend on all that infrastructure? So, so I think um, there is, there's going to be a strong play in, on the education side, and we are working a lot with the government. So there's a there's a lot of public uh, focus we we're trying to do. Private, of course, yes, uh, to make it a revenue generating company, we we would look at the private institutes as well, um, and also, but I think. In general, you know, um, bypassing both private and public, and now being invested upon by Village Capital and Michael and Susan Dell Foundation. Also, uh, we're more like focusing on the impact side. So for us, impact matters. Mm-hmm. So I think we want to raise our next two rounds of funding by being classified as an impact-focused company, so that impact funds invest in us more and more, and they feel that we are creating that impact on at the ground level. That's where I see the vision of the company also kind of you know going along
0: and if people listening in want to find out more are you on Twitter
6: or yeah very much very active in fact (laughs) I just tweeted about this event a couple of hours back okay
0: and what's the handle
6: Uh, it's my name Raman underscore Simulanis okay that's my Twitter handle and uh, Facebook I'm there as well I think 99% of my posts are all about the company as well because yeah. I'm passionate about it. <laughs> um, and of course, I'm LinkedIn as well. I'm there. So yeah, I'm very much reachable. And all Good luck this was. evening. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, very nervous. <laughs> yeah, Don't be too to nervous. It. Nervous is good though uh, if you channel it right. Well, it's, it's all about getting into the flow. Once I'm in it, yeah. I'll just get into the zone and let's see.
0: Perfect. Well, lovely to meet you.
6: Certainly. And same here. Thanks for uh, you know, having me as part of this conversation.
0: Okay, brilliant. So I'm here with Charles McIntyre. Um, from EdTechX. Good morning. Good morning. And, um... Yeah, we were just swapping notes about uh, what a busy week it is this week with uh, Education World Forum and then this uh, this event here, um, Education Innovation Conference, BET, and um, I suppose you're also planning for the run up to South by Southwest Edus.
7: Yeah, no, it's it's uh, no, it's fun, it's exciting. I mean, it feels like you're right; there are a lot of people in town for, for BET, and and as you say, then we've got uh, the fun of going to Austin, which at least I think will probably be a little bit warmer than it is here. Yeah. and we are. Um, showcasing uh, EdTech companies from Europe and from Asia this year so last year we just brought over uh, companies from Europe and because of the success of the event that we had in in Asia we're now bringing over um, uh, three or four companies from Asia and putting them all together to showcase them to the kind of US community which will be really interesting.
0: And what kind of companies have you got so what, what, what type of solutions they offer?
7: Well it's interesting because um, there's a variety from um, people involved in kind of the analytics and adaptive part of the market through to looking at content through to also the what's I think increasingly intriguing this whole area of kind of online tutors and a blended solution of both technology but incorporating the kind of face-to-face part of it so for us, you know, there's, there's some really interesting mixes coming out of both Asia and, and Europe. So in Asia, there are businesses like iTutor Group, who I'm sure you've, you've come across, who um, are, you know, growing very fast in their, their own regions, but have this kind of combination of kind of online tutor and content. And particularly in the kind of the K-12 space, but increasingly also in the corporate space, that's becoming a, a really exciting area.
0: And so your dual role, so your other hat on uh, with Ibis Capital. Yeah. Um, so in terms of investing in edtech, are there particular, you know, the, the age-old question, people want to know, you know, where you're investing and what yeah. you look out for and that kind of thing?
7: Well, um, you've caught me slightly off guard, but in the sense that, um, that as of, I think it will be... Friday of this week we'll be announcing our next uh, uh, thing that we've just invested into Um, and I will happily tell you uh, on the nose that day so you have the news but um, it's very exciting I've just come back from having just signed the agreements and so that will take us into um, a whole new area of a little bit kind of linked into the kind of online tutoring that I've talked about uh, but much more in the corporate space Mm -hmm. and What fascinates us is really uh, this whole link into lifelong learning and what's happening um, in, in terms of businesses and how they're looking after their employees. And I think that's one of the big changes that we're starting to see is that historically, you know that there was some in-house training of of staff but not very sophisticated and it was very classroom based and suddenly now with technology companies have really woken up to how they can educate and develop their uh, employees and staff and um, so that's an area we've just invested into and are very excited about what's going to happen there.
0: Interesting, okay I'll look out for that on Friday and the the other thing is is, I know in terms of MOOCs in terms of where the actual monetization is happening that yeah. that that kind of reflects what you've just said in terms of um, you know, corporate training and actually um, some of the larger blue chips taking on these moot courses for in house training and retention of their best staff as well
7: yeah no you're you're right and um MOOCs are interesting i think the 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 challenge within that environment is the kind of the mix between something that is massive and open so by definition is quite general to then looking at specific needs that individual corporates have because obviously one they have different requirements of their staff than you know one organization to another but also they're keen to differentiate themselves mm-hmm. from other organizations so if they can put in place a better form of training or a more interesting and engaging form of training that's going to make them stand out from from their competitors and other people
0: okay well thank you very much no, Charles. my pleasure and i'm delighted to now be here with cedric uh Haberbeek. yeah how would you pronounce that
8: have it's a very dutch Haberbeek. name
0: actually <laughs> co-founder of adorable
8: team is completely remotely organized um so for example our lead program is from russia <gasps> Um, I have an artist in Italy, one in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Gabe, my co-founder, he is uh, based in the U.S. Uh, he spent a while in San Francisco, but eventually moved back to Santa Barbara um, because he found the DietTech atmosphere a little bit stronger actually in Santa Barbara than uh, in San Francisco. Um, so yeah, that's uh, how we organized. So, Actually, Gabe, which is my co-founder, is the only one that I met physically in, uh, in real life from the entire so team. Yeah, this the could
0: be complete fabrications and you would never know. <laughs> um, but does that mean that you, you're relatively recently founded? Or?
8: No, actually not. We've been at this for about two years already. Okay. So um, actually, um, Gabe and myself, we met um, online. Um, Gabe at the time uh, just finished his um, his thesis uh, where he used the likes of Second Life and so on Mm -hmm. to do some research on the power of virtual worlds for education and at the end of his thesis he concluded like okay there's definitely some potential in virtual worlds for education but there's no tool which is like purely focused on education I want to build this and then at that moment i was traveling around the world looking for a remote opportunity mm-hmm. and then there was this person that posted somewhere on odesk at the time which is now upwork it's a, it's an online freelancer platform oh, and yeah, <laughs> um, so he posted oh, yeah i want to build a virtual worlds and then i replied and i said look um although i might not be able to build all of it i do know how to lead the team that could build it so i'm interested and then one thing came to another and a couple of months later we founded a company together and now here we are so
0: in a nutshell what is Adobe?
8: in a nutshell it's virtual worlds for education mm-hmm. so um, while now for online education there are already possibilities to do online education like video chat um, we argue that um, there's a there's a more engaging uh, possibility which is avatar based uh, online education it is for synchronous uh, for synchronous learning mm-hmm. um, because for example with video chat you're co- you're visually reminded that you're not in the same environment while in an avatar avatar based environment where you see your avatar which is in the same room as the other avatars you get this sense of togetherness and this and a couple of other factors which comes from the research uh, that, that Gabe did, uh, add to the engagement factor of an, online, of an online session.
0: And what uptake have you had with, uh, I'm guessing you, you're trying to work with schools, is that right?
8: Yeah, so actually at the moment we're running our Pioneer programme um, actually the second launch that we did, we relaunched our first launch was back in December 2015, where we basically said, um, here are virtual for education, have a go and although we got like some, uh, some initial traction, we got to about 900 teachers who were trying it out um, in general the, 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 the friction and the change management was a bit too overwhelming for most of the teachers um, so what we did then now in October uh, 2016 is we relaunched and we it around we said like okay apply to be a pioneer motivate how you think that you could use a virtual world for your teaching and if we accept you then uh, we'll really take you to a guided program to help you make this work for for your lessons and uh, the update that we've had since then is I think uh, now we're about 315 so uh, we had about ten to twenty new teachers uh, per year and and it 's pretty nice actually. We get a lot of positive press uh, the teachers themselves, the pioneers themselves they 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 talk about us at conferences they 're really well they 're really supportive and that 's really nice
0: and what 's the kind of business model behind it as well so um, i mean and also in terms of uh, sort of situational or scenario based Um, approach to it so would it be a teacher who you know you get in the classroom you you kick off by jumping into sort of subject matter through this experience or would it be outside of the classroom how does that work
8: well uh, in the ideal situation it's like online education everybody sitting at their own place so it's a bit we We practice what we preach, as a sort of say, so our team is also all over the place. Um, And typically, you would have somebody sitting at home behind his computer, and when because a lot of online education, you don't need syn- synchronous. I mean, there's there's tons of courses online where you can just do individual learning, but at a certain moment, it's interesting to come together. For example, to have discussions or a kind of mentoring. There's always a moment where it makes sense to come together and uh, have, a, have a have a joint moment. Um, so basically, that is the, 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 the way that you would use it. Um, and what we see now, because we are learning as we are going uh, that mostly for distance learning and for technology integration actually uh, those are like the, 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 the biggest interest of, the, of our of our pioneers we have some others like like looking at stem and and, and so on um, but those are the most like language learning in a, in a distance in a distance setting
4: and
0: you mentioned uh, second life before uh, and I also used to work in, um, in the events industry and uh, there was always this big idea that, you know, when Second Life came out that uh, it was going to cam- cannibalize face-to-face events because people would just dive into this kind of uh, virtual events world and it never really happened um because i think people still you know there's still extreme value in in connecting face to face so what would you say to things like the demise of second life and um you know that kind of experience like why why would this work in an educational setting
8: well the thing is that um one of the things that we do is that we r- really are building a virtual world for education so my biggest critic of whatever we create is my co-founder Gabe who's been a teacher himself so when we come up with something and he is like nah I wouldn't care as a teacher well then it's simple that then we then we don't do it so I think what we're doing different is that we have this really strong focus on what would work for a teaching environment Um, and because we work so hard on how it would work for our teachers and really listening to our users, um, I do think we have a we have a shot this time. I mean, it's it's simple things like for example, our worlds are private. You you don't want your kids to be online somewhere and some random people walking into the environment and start talking to the mm-hmm. to the kids or to the students that you're talking to. So that that's wha- that's wha- that's one of the things. Um, some for example, at the moment, the animations, the things that your avatar can do is raise a hand and sit down, like other animations that would be available in Second Life or things that are not available in uh, in our environment so and the the part of the virtual world is, is one part of it um, it also allows us and um, that's a bit what we're also now more and more exploring is to curate a little bit um, what we make available to the teachers so uh, for example um In the partnerships that we build, um, you'll be be talking to, to Raman later on, but that's an example of somebody that is creating interesting environments, which could be interesting for our teachers. So what we do is, okay, maybe we can use a lab environment and easily make that available to the teachers. And then if there's a teacher that wants to use a lab environment, then we have one available. So even where in a second life you would have obviously also a lot of environments we kind of say okay you're interested into for example uh, more language learning or more history well we are talking to that specific partner who has cultural heritage models mm-hmm. so maybe you should talk so it's so a bit of curation like as well you actually uh, literally give one of the 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 things that we're developing now so actually um we've been talking to another company uh which is called biblio what they do is they do uh, content surfacing actually um and our take yes yeah yeah. and um what they do very well is that for example uh, if a museum has six hundred thousand pieces eighty percent of that would be in the basement um and if we have a virtual world where It's easy for teachers to arrive into our world and then it's easy to bring up the relevant pieces of a specific museum and it's a win-win situation.
0: much for listening everyone don't forget you can subscribe at itunes or stitcher you can rate and review at itunes and you can leave your comments by at podcast edtech on twitter or via speakpipe.com forward slash the edtech podcast have a great week and see you back here next time for the first of our bet edtech trends episodes